Last week, uh, I had mentioned a very important idea, and this idea is really uh, one of the indicators that we are very close to the Messianic era. Uh, and the idea was, what is the climate before Mashiach comes? And I want to explain more, and I want to expand on that concept, because the concept of Prikat's oil, which means to overthrow the yoke, to overthrow the yoke that God has imposed on mankind, the concept of righteousness and holiness, and mankind wants to overthrow it. <clears throat> that concept uh, is a very important idea, and I want to expand on that. Because the ultimate stage of that concept is the war of Goig from the land of Mogoig against the Mashiach. And that's really what it is. That's the last uh, manifestation of that stage. <clears throat> uh, so, <clears throat> Perikas oil means to overthrow the yoke, which I had mentioned. And it means ultimately uh, to uh, deny or to or rather to defy <clears throat> that which God uh, wants to mankind to abide by. That's really what it means. And if you think about it, that there are different stages of overthrowing or defying the, uh, the uh, instructions of God. And I'm going to just uh, go through some of them, uh, and I'm going to say that there are really four stages, or they can be, or what's happening is, can be delineated in four stages. Okay. Now, in general, there's precast oil, again, to overthrow the yoke of morality and ethics and righteousness and holiness and so on, uh, which is the major climate in tremendous intensity before the Mashiach comes. And the reason for that is because after he comes, the major climate after Mashiach comes is, of course, the exact opposite. Is is that besides God, there is nothing else. And then the whole world submits to that idea. So it's, when you think about it, it's the exact opposite or reverse. But Prikat's oil itself, this climate, when mankind seeks to overthrow and assert himself, can be uh, delineated into four stages. <clears throat> the first stage is where man believes in God, okay, but he doesn't want to really follow what God wants. He wants to do what he wants. You know, he wants to give in to his drives, his needs, his, needs, his urges. Uh, he wants to seek pleasure. Uh, he wants to dominate others for power, security, right? Uh, and, of course, uh, enslave others that they should do his bidding. That's really, really, really what he wants to do. The problem that he always has, of course, is that he believes in God. And therefore, he obviously is limited in terms of how much he can rebel, if you want to look at it that way. So that first stage is when man believes in God. But he compromises God's authority. And the ones who are really involved in that is Esau. 
Asa, we know, is uh, uh, today anyway, it's Western civilization or Christianity. And um, Christianity, as well as other religions, even though they believe in God and so on, but in many ways, they compromise with God. They mitigate God and what he demands. It's sort of like eating your cake uh, and, uh, you know, um, and ha- you, you can have it, eat your cake and so on. Uh, therefore, this is what they do. And there are different strategies which they do. For instance, you know, um, they will attribute the characteristics that they want to assume and they will attribute it to God and say, well, it's not just that us wants to steal. God steals, you see. Uh, or, for instance, they will say that what God desires is theft. And you have that. You've had that in religions. There are many religions which are, in many ways, murderous. Uh, so they can say, you know, that what well, God wants us to murder, you see, um, and you have a lot of religions that do that. Uh, I mean, Islam with jihad, it's classic, you know, that uh, God wants them to kill and, or, or, and take over the entire world. So they actually have attributed that attribute to God. Therefore, of course, they can do it. Or they can say that the avoider, you know, the actual service to God is encompasses sacrificing others. And you had religions that, that did that, you see. Uh, for instance, the Aztecs or the uh, Mayans. They used to slaughter people on top of their temples, you know, dig out their heart or whatever and so on. Uh, so you have that, see. So therefore, what that basically is, I mean, it's, it's very extensive, but basically, it's where mankind believes in God, but he wants to exit. He wants to compromise God. Uh, a second stage of Precasoil is where egocentric atheism, agnosticism, you see, or God, uh, uh, he, he exists, but he has nothing to do with the world, which is really what Aristotle believed and so on, you know. Uh, therefore, that allows man to completely defy God in a certain sense, or he just doesn't believe in God. Then the third stage is where God, where, is where mankind tries to destroy the Jewish people. <clears throat> and the, the, uh, the, as I once said, the, the real origin of anti-Semitism is because mankind hates God, therefore they hate Jews. Because the Jews have brought the message of God through the Torah to mankind. And mankind does not want to be controlled in any way, they don't want authority. They don't want to be told what to do. So the, the, the slaughter of Jews, which have gone on for thousands of years, is a tremendous uh, stage of defying God. Then, of course, there's warring with God himself, against God himself. You know, um, and that happens. Uh, where mankind wars, as, as I will mention, uh, examples of this and so on, you know. So we see that there are different ways of overthrowing the yoke of God. And I have mentioned basically four different types and so on.
Now, uh, what is interesting is that these levels or stages of, of, of this climate of overthrowing uh, uh, God by asserting their own sense of self, um, in a certain sense, can correspond to the levels of gaiva. Gaiva is arrogance. It is hubris, you see. And there are different levels. What Gaiva really is, is a distortion of a person in terms of who he thinks he really is. In other words, he ascribes to himself that which is far, uh, far inferior, greater than he really is. So to begin from one end of it, for instance, a megromaniac. Megromaniac basically believes, it's really in many ways almost psychotic, uh, delusional, and so on, where he believes that he is so supreme, you see, that really nothing else exists. And if they do exist, they are, they are completely worthless. It's a supreme understanding or belief in his own status. It's a megalomaniac. I mean, I've been many megalomaniacs in history. You know, I mean, uh, you have uh, Stalin and uh, Hitler and so on, you know. Many Roman emperors were megalomaniacs where they thought that they were everything. So that's the worst level of corruption, of distortion of who a person is. Uh, a level underneath that would be people who are egocentric. And what that means is that of course, people exist and so on, and they do have worth, but the basic worth of these people is to serve me. They are the center of the universe, you see, and there are people who believe that, that, uh, you know, others exist only to serve me, you know. A lot of these people in many ways are psychopaths, you see, where they believe that they can do anything to anybody, whatever they want. Because everybody really exists only really to serve them. Now, these people are egocentric, but they're not megalomaniacal. A third level of gaiva is called arrogance, where people believe that, no, people don't exist to serve me, but I am greater than other people. Yes, I am superior. I am greater than other people. That's arrogance, you see. So they believe in the inequality of mankind, where there are humans which are greater than other humans by virtue of their own existence, not because they did something superior. And that's also common, the concept of arrogance. And then there's the lowest form of gaiva or, or uh, uh, hubris or whatever, conceit, that is called smugness, self-righteousness. You see, where they believe, no, they're equal to everybody else, but basically they can do whatever they want, you know. And uh, in other words, if I want one, I want to take a vacation, right? Uh, because I want to take a vacation. I don't want to, nobody can defy my will. So even though they're not, they don't feel themselves superior to others, but they feel as if there's a real yesh that they really exist, their will exists, and therefore they can do whatever they want, you see. So 
those are different levels of, if you want to say, you know, uh, self-images and so on, you know. So we therefore see that there are different stages or levels of precast oil, which is to defy, overthrow the yoke that God has imposed on man. And this is very important. Now, I want to go through the, another concept, which in many ways mirrors the worst aspect of overthrowing the yoke, and that is called Goig from the land of Mogig. It is the famous war of Goig. What is that? Why does that precede the Mashiach? And the answer to that is because that is the ultimate anti-belief of who God is. You see? Because they war, basically, against God. It is the ultimate desire to destroy God. That's what Goig is. He's an individual that gathers the nations of the world that realizes that their way of life is ending because there's now a messianic figure. And he has to defy the Mashiach. He has to end this person's reign because there's a tremendous danger that these people will be annihilated. And therefore he will war with the Mashiach. That is why Goig, the war of Goig, is a messianic war. Now it makes sense because that's the ultimate rebellion against God. It is the ultimate defiance of God. And in the end of time, this is what happens, you see. Like I said, because after the Mashiach comes, it's the exact reverse. So in a certain sense, it's the last attempt of a nation under Goig to destroy the entire ethos of God, whatever God wants. Now we have that, we've had that throughout history, you see. And I'm going to bring several examples of this, that in many ways it was Goig. And some of the ideas that come out of this are very, very interesting, very important. Now, we see this really in Tehillim. If you look at Perak Bays, okay, uh, Perak Bays in Tehillim, it is a messianic chapter. And I'm going to read just the first couple of sukkim in English, um, and you could see clearly what this is, that this is a messianic war. And it says, Lomo rokshugoyim uluumim yehgurik, why do people gather and the nations talk in vain? Right? And then it says, The kings of the earth, all of them, take their stand to oppose, and the lords conspire secretly. They all get together against Hashem and against His anointed. There you are. That's what it is. And David HaMelech is actually saying that in the second chapter. So we have here the peoples of the earth, the nations of the earth, the kings, right? And all their ministers and lords, they're all conspiring to go against God and his anointed. Now, we know what that means. God, of course, is God. And his anointed is the Mashiach. 
you see. And that's what they, and that's what they try to do. But what is the ultimate idea, you see? He who sits in heaven will laugh, and the Lord will mock them. So, of course, God laughs, you see. And then it says, then he will speak to them in his anger. God will speak to them in his anger, and in his fury, he will terrify them, you see. And, of course, he will ultimately destroy them all. Uh, that's it. That is the ultimate idea of Goyit from the land of Mogoid. It is when the nations of the world conspire to rebel against God. And the reason for that is because of the belief in who they think they are. You know, they believe that they exist independent of God. And therefore they are entitled to their own will. And they could do whatever they want. You see, and certainly they must destroy God and his anointed one. Now, his anointed ones, by the way, is not just the Mashiach. His anointed one is Israel, because they represent him. They are ambassadors to God. They are the bearers of the Torah, which, of course, is the message of God, not only to the Jews, basically, but also certainly uh, to the nations of the world. So, therefore, they conspire to destroy God. That's really what it's all about is what's called the ultimate battle of evil, to overthrow good. And it happens in the end. You see, it's the worst possible time of the world when everything is directed to destroy the, uh, the um, rules, regulations, the laws of mankind, where they wish to completely dominate and take over. Believe it or not, that's really what we're witnessing. We are witnessing a tremendous upsurge in evil. Dictatorships, totalitarianism, right? Tyrants, everything. People who want to destroy other people. And the world, earth is now filled with this. I mean, we're looking at China in real terms. You know, communism. We're looking at Russia, Right? Right now, Afghanistan is falling. So we're looking at the overthrow of a civilization and the com- com- a terrible annihilation of the Afghan people. We're in Iran, right? Korea, <clears throat> you see. And not only that, but these are very extreme forms. But unfortunately, even America, the people in America want to take over. They want to, in many ways, enslave American population. Yes, that's what communism is, using the pretext of economic theory. Really, it's a tyranny. They want to take over everything, dominate, power. They want to tell you what to do and where to go and how to live. That is tyranny. It is the destruction, ultimately, of the individual's right to determine his own life and his own pursuit of happiness. We are now facing a frenzy of this type of thinking in the world, you see. Therefore, the world is becoming a very dangerous place. Now, throughout history, there have been many challenges to God. For instance, the first major challenge 
what's called the Tower of Babel, the Dor HaFlogo, right? Where the nations, that, or there actually was one nation, they attempted to overthrow God. And they actually built this tower to do it, which when you think about it, is really incredible. But they did this. It was a true attempt to destroy God, you see, to overthrow God. And, of course, it was a war against his chief emissary, which was Avram Avinu. As Nimrod threw Avram Avinu into the Kipshina Eish. So, that Dora Flog is not just an event in history. It is really going trying to destroy God and Avram Avinu. So, it's the first attempt to do that. And of course, we know what God did. I mentioned last week's year. God spread them throughout the world. He multiplied, confounded their language. And therefore, they became separate nations. And I mentioned, of course, why. So therefore, Roma Vino and the Jewish people can do the Tikkun and so on. But the Doha Flogga, really, if you think about that, is the first major attempt to destroy, to overthrow God. Now, there were other minor attempts. I mentioned the generation of Chase and so on. But the Doha Flogger, the generation of dispersion, has a major contribution to this entire effort. But that's what it was. It was a goikumogoi scenario. The second one is Egypt. Egypt, of course, defied God. When Paris said to Moshe, I don't know who God is, neither will I send the Jews out, right? That was a defiance of God. And of course, clearly it was a defiance of the Jewish people, you see. But, <clears throat> of course, things happened where God demonstrated his awesome power, where he destroyed Egypt in an extraordinary way, supernaturally. And then you come to the Kriyas Yamsef, which, of course, is the splitting of the Red Sea. And there you are. That's Goig, right, trying to destroy the Jews thereby destroying God. So after being destroyed in Egypt, they actually run after the Jews, which is really insane. But God took away their free will. But in any case, they're pursuing the Jews to kill them all. And uh, this is Goig trying to destroy Jews and ultimately to defy God. And this is also the concept of Goig, you see. And really... What should have happened is the Jews, of course, uh, this was the end, because the Jews were going to receive the Torah, and Moshe Rabbeinu would be Mashiach bin Yosef. So this fulfilled the concept of Goig <coughs> right before the Messianic era. So the Kriya Samsef was that. And what is interesting is that the way to remedy or the way to, you know, sustain oneself is... The two things that were really required at that time, and one was Bitochen, where God said, where Moshe Rabbeinu said, no, you have to believe in God that he will save you, because that's obviously what he did so far. Why would he let you down to be destroyed? 
So Bitochen was a very important concept in the Messianic, right before the Messianic era, when we are entering the stage of Goig, Goig Mogoig. But there's another one called Lashon Hara. Because Moshe Rabbeinu, because the Medrash says that the reason why it says three times in the Medrash Rabbo, that the reason why the Jews got out of Egypt, right, is because they did not speak Lashon Hara. Yeah, that's what it says in the Medrash. And therefore what that meant, and Moshe Rabbeinu says, you know, that, uh, you know, his Yatsvuru, stand back and watch, as Yeshua Hashem, the salvation of God, right? And Hashem Yilochim Lochem, He will fight for you. Fiatim Tachrishin, and you be silent. What does it mean to be silent? It means don't complain. Don't say that God has deserted us. That's pure Lashon Hara. So Moshe Rabbeinu is actually saying, these are the things you should do in the midst of the war of Goy Gamogoy. Don't blaspheme God. Right? Don't slander him. And have be talking that he will save you. Those are two very powerful instruments to survive the war of Goy Gamogoy. But that's really what happened in the end. You see, and that's what the Jews did. They had bitochen. They didn't talk Lashon Hara. Of course, they were saved, and they were able to receive the Torah. Unfortunately, Meshavin was not Meshach ben Yosef because of the sin of the golden calf. So we have that. Now, a third incident, and there are others which I'm not mentioning. A third very important incident is Chizkiyahu HaMelech, King Chizkiyahu, you see. And it's said in Chazal that God wanted to make him the Mashiach. And who would be good trying to destroy him? Sancherev. This is what it says, which is interesting. So here there's an army of 183,000 soldiers that surrounded Jerusalem with Chizkiyohu. You see. And God wanted to turn that event into the war of Goy and Mogoy because that's classically what it was. He wanted to destroy Chizkiyo, the Jewish people, and their allegiance to God. You see. So what happened? So God, in one night, a Malach went through the camp and killed 184,000 soldiers, which is an unbelievable miracle. Problem was, Chizkiyo did not sing Shira was song and proclaimed the outstanding and extraordinary miracle. So therefore, that event, which should have been the War of Goig and Mogoig, was stopped, you see. But this is what, say, what, what uh, uh, a really Goig uh, and uh, Mogoig attempt to destroy Cheskyoho. And it could have been. However, it wasn't, like I said, because Chizkiyo did not uh, sing Shira. So that is a third idea or attempt of Goig and Mogoig, and so on, you see, you know. Um, I want to mention something which I think is very valuable as an Agav. It says in the Midrash also, very impartial, Tzav, Vayikra, very interesting statement. It says, 
that the way the exiles will be gathered is only because of the merit of learning Mishnayas. Yeah, that's what it says. Okay, it's an incredible statement. That in the merit of learning Mishnayas, the exiles will be gathered. You see, that's what it says. Why? And I'm only doing this briefly. Because God wants to rehabilitate the Jews before the Mashiach comes. A rehabilitation means to learn the Torah and to fulfill the Torah. Now the interesting thing is that Mishnayis is the entire oral law. Therefore, if a person knows the Mishnayis, Be'iyun, means in depth, in many ways he knows the entire oral law. But the Medrash says also very interesting that when you learn Torah, if you learn Mishnayis, then not only do you learn Mishnayis, but you also fulfill the area of Mishnayis that you're learning. For instance, if you learn about Kochim, the sacrifices, then God considers it as if you brought the sacrifices. If you learn about the building of the Beis HaMikdash, then God considers it as if you built the Beis HaMikdash. Therefore, learning certainly Mishnayis has that twofold factor where not only do you get rewarded for knowing or for learning, but also for fulfilling the Mishnahis that you learn, the mitzvah that the Mishnahis talks about. Now it says by Chizkiyohu that they found, they searched the entire land, and they found that even kids had tremendous mastery over the laws of purity and impurity, Tumavatara. So certainly there's no Gemara in those days. Basically, they're just the oral law. Or, if you want, you can call it Mishnayis. You see? So, Chizkiyot actually did what the Medrash said. Now, he was able to do that because he's a king. He was able to enforce the lima, the learning of all of this, because he's the king, and so on. In fact, he said that if a person does not learn this, then he will kill him. He actually threatened them with the sword. But the main thing is that all the Jewish people were masters of the oral law. And that is the requirement because that would be the rehabilitation. They would not only have learned Mishnayis or the oral law, but they also would have fulfilled it because one of the ways of fulfilling it is by actually learning the laws of that area. In any case, that is why Chizkiyot did what the Medrash says. And as a result of that, God could have used Sancherev against Chizkiyot as the actual war of Goy Gemogoy. Anyway, I thought that would be a very important idea of why this could be the war of Goy Gemogoy. So these are three ideas. But we are now really in the last Tikufa or era of this world. Let me tell you a very important, interesting story, and you will understand. Rabbi Cholin Wasserman, who was the greatest Talmud student of the Chofetz Chaim, he was once in London, and he was giving a lecture in a congregation called Marziki Hadas. It's a true story, by the way. And after the lecture, they were begging him. This lecture probably happened sometime in 1937-38 when the, the Nazis in Mach were killing the Jews. 
you know, certainly they were threatening them and so on, you know. So they begged him not to go back because he was in London. They begged him not to go back to Europe, Kovno, which is uh, Poland, where he had a yeshiva and so on, Lithuania, whatever. And he said, I want to tell you something. I want to tell you what my Rebbe, the Chofetz Chaim, said. And here's what the Chofetz Chaim said. And he tells this to the people who are asking him not to go back. He said that the Messianic war of Goig Mogoy will be split into three parts. And each part will be a terrible destruction. The first part and the second part will be terrible destruction to the Jewish people. You see. And of course, uh, and so Rabbi Holland said, the first part was World War One, and the second part is World War Two. And he said that World War Three will happen many years later, but it will not be as destructive as the first two. And the reason why God split the war of Goig and Mogoy into three parts is to make it easier for the Jews. Because the problem is, is that if, it was just, if there was just one war, so the Gemara says that that war will be so devastating to the Jewish people that only one or two families in a city will survive. That's really what the Holocaust was, you know. But in any case, but therefore God has split the uh, the um, War of Goig into three parts. And he says World War One and World War Two. you see. And what's interesting, so Rabbi Holland says to these people, so it doesn't make a difference whether I go back or not, because the war will come even here also, which means England, which is, of course, it did. What do we see from this? It's a very important concept, you see. And that is that we are in the middle of Goig and Mogoig. It already started. This war, which is the ultimate defiance of God and the Jewish people, has already begun in 1913, you see. 1914, whatever. World War I was a tremendous destruction to Jewish communities all over Europe. Tremendous amount of synagogues, yeshivas, and so on were destroyed. That was World War One. World War Two was much worse. World War Two is something that we've never seen before, you see. Because it involves a man. His name is Hitler Yamachemoy. Okay. He hated the Jews. It's a classic descendant of Amalek who hated the Jews because he felt that the Jews took away the ability of mankind to compromise with God by making people weak. He gave that they gave them a conscience, you know, made them feel guilty and so on. And therefore he hated the Jews, you see. And as a result of that, he wrote a book called Mein Kampf, you see, to justify what he said he wanted to do. <clears throat> Who was Hitler? What's the point of that? Because World War Two is really is really the second part of the war of Goig against the Jewish people and, of course, God. And therefore, if that's the case, then Hitler himself is an appointee of the Sultan. As such, Hitler, if you want to say it, really, 
is an anointed figure of the Sultan to destroy the Jews. You see, he was not an ordinary person. He had a single obsession to destroy the Jewish people. I mean, think about that. Think about the different attributes of this war, the Holocaust, against the Jewish people. First of all, the Nazis were incredibly methodical. They planned the murder of the entire Jewish people. Of course, they hope they can get away with it. Certainly of European Jewry, you know. It was a tremendous dynamic mechanism to destroy everybody. It wasn't that they just went to war and they happened to kill Jews. No. The murder of the Jewish people was planned. That's what it was. The second unusual part about this is that it was a planned murder of every Jew. It didn't make a difference. In fact, they went all the way to the fourth generation. If you had a relative who was Jewish four generations away from you, your great-great-great-grandparents, that was enough to condemn you to die. That's the extent that he wanted to destroy the Jews. And of course, it was to all the Jews. What is also interesting is that he made total use of the Jewish body. You know, most people want to kill, they kill the person, that's it. But what he did is he would use the skin of the Jews to make lampshades, the fats to make soap. He would use the labor. It's almost like the Jew was a cow, you know, where you use every part of the body. That's how worthless is the Jews. I mean, they were looked at as like cockroaches, you see. That's unusual. The extent of murder is unusual in that way, you see. And not only that, but the brutality of the murder was incredible. You know, in a concentration camp, you could be killed if, if a Nazi would even look at you. You look at him the wrong way, he would just kill you on the spot. The ease of being slaughtered is unprecedented. And then the brutality, how they would murder you, the torture is unheard of. There are many books written about that. But you, it's hard to even go through any of that. It's hard to believe that people could do this to other people, even if they hate them. Look, you want to hate the guy? Okay, so kill him and that's it. That's not what they did. You know, it was a tremendous attempt to be brutal, torture to the Jew, you see. And to make sure that all the Jews died, they would have these murder squads. They were called Einsatzgruppen. You see, they were murder squads that would accompany many times the Wehrmacht, which is the German army. And the army would conquer a city. Then immediately, and these, were, of course, was the SS, they would go into the city, round up all the Jews, and kill them. So you actually had an official section, segment, of the, they were not part of the army. They were a special squad, murder squads. And their focus was to destroy the Jewish people. In fact, that was their obsession. You know, there's a, uh, an individual called William Shearer who wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And what he said was amazing. 
He said at the end of the war, the German generals approached Hitler, and they told him that, no, we're not doing anything. The, the, the war's being lost. So Hitler asked them why. So they said that because you're taking all the railroad cards, instead of shipping the troops to the front, you are taking them and shipping the uh, Jews to concentration camps to kill them. We don't have any railroad cards to ship the Jews. And Hitler told them to get lost. He couldn't care less, which makes him one of the greatest traitors to Germany. He was more interested in killing the Jews, right, than in winning the war, even though he said that the Third Reich will last a thousand years. It's astounding, because you realize something, that Hitler was not really interested in, uh, in uh, conquering nations. The critical concept of conquering a nation was to filter out all the Jews and to kill them. This was the purpose. That is a messianic war. That is the war of Goig, to destroy the Jewish people. It is the ultimate defiance, you see, of God and the Jewish people. Because that's really what it is. World War I and World War II is the war of Goig against the Jewish people and against God. And this is really what the Chavetz Chaim is saying. But we now see what type of a war, what happens when it is a messianic war. And Hitler, in many ways, is an anointed figure of the Sutton. He's the guy to destroy the Jewish people. The only difference is that, that's why there's a third part, is because it's Mogoid, Goig from the land of Mogoig, it was Mogoig against the Jewish people. But, but Goig himself was not present. He will come up in the third confrontation. But one thing is clear, is the real brute force of Goig was expended in that World War II. Therefore, the, whole, the uh, third aspect of Goig and Mogoig, which is coming up, is not going to be that way. It won't be, it'll be a confrontation, but nowhere near what the Holocaust was, you see. So God, therefore, what he did was he absorbed the terrible decree of the war of Goig and Mogoig against the Jewish people. This, therefore, is really what is. And I'll tell you something which I think is true, although I have no proof. Moshe Rabbeinu was born, remember, if you want to understand what's happening in the world, you know, the messianic process, then you have to look at Egypt to try him. Because the process of redemption in Egypt is also the process at the end. We find that Moshe Rabbeinu was born at a time that Paroi decreed that Jews have to die. All firstborn have to die. And all of a sudden, in the midst of that, Moshe Rabbeinu is born. And one of the ideas to that is because the Mashiach cannot know, not the Mashiach, excuse me, the Sutton cannot know that the Mashiach is born and is now on earth to be raised and ultimately to be redeemed. In other words, the Sutton is so busy prosecuting for Jews to die that he doesn't realize that the Mashiach himself has now been slipped down to the earth, you see. And 
that idea is a very important idea, that the Mashiach is always hidden, because if the Satan was aware of who he is, and so on, then clearly he would try to stop the Mashiach from living, and certainly from deeming. I believe it's possible, although I have no proof, that it's very possible that just like Moshe Rabbeinu, who is, was Mashiach almost anyway, was born at a time of absolute brutality and murder to the Jews in order to conceal this from the Sultan, I believe that it's very possible that whoever the Mashiach is perhaps was also born at the time of the Holocaust. You see. So therefore, his neshama that is now brought down also has to be concealed from the Sultan or else there would be major attempts by the Sultan to stop the birth of the Mashiach, you see. It's my speculation. But in any case, but why does the Barsham do that, you see? Why does the Barsham want to conduct this type of war against the Jewish people? Because that's really what it is. And the answer is that there's certain very important um, things that have to be accomplished, you see. The problem is that, and I mentioned this quite a while ago, that the redemption has to come because I mentioned that the, certainly in Egypt this was true, is that the world is at the Memtashari Tumah. The world is at an incredibly low state of righteousness or morality. Terrible, the state that they're in. Therefore, what the Bansha wants to do is to press the restart button. But the restart button in the days of the Marvel, right, was obviously... Uh, you know, uh, something which the Rebunsham did, and he destroyed the entire earth. But the restart button in the Memtashaitum by Egypt wasn't destruction of the planet. Rather, God had to balance the books because the Jews don't deserve redemption. They are too far gone. That's why you have the concept of Goiz as one of them. So it's not only the climate before the Mashiach is the absolute dominance of evil throughout the planet. But also, it's the suffering that has to take place because God has that problem, so to speak. How do you undo the sins of Jews for thousands of years to be able to deserve the messianic process? And therefore, there has to be a tremendous, intense uh, event where Jews will suffer in order to satisfy justice, because God will bring the redemption only when justice is completely quiet, satisfied. That is why it's called multi-deterministic. That is why God uses the war of Goy the Mogoy, right? That's why he uses that war to satisfy many solutions to problems. And I mentioned one of the major problems is that the Jews don't deserve the redemption. And therefore, this happens. Tremendous amount of uh, evil and tyranny in the world where Jews have tremendous suffering, tremendous amount of anti-Semitism in order to balance all the debt and to remove the sins for 2,000 years of exile. And that's one of the major reasons why in the end there's Goig, Mogoig, 
and also there's a atonement for all the sins you see and that's really one of the major ideas of why but there's other ideas also which I had once mentioned that is that when God is going to overthrow ultimately with the Mashiach he's going to overthrow the evil and the tyranny he wants to demonstrate his power therefore the greater the enemy is the more power they have when he overthrows it it's a much greater demonstration of the power of God because to over to overthrow a weak enemy is nothing as compared to overthrow a phenomenal formidable foe therefore what God does is he elevates evil you see to demonstrate that when it is overthrown right then therefore as a result of that um, people will see the unbelievable extraordinary power of God all of this is wrapped up in this goig and mogoig you see and also I once mentioned that part of the concept of a holocaust is darkness is that a tremendous amount of the Jews are destroyed because each Jew brings in a tremendous amount of light holiness spirituality so by the Jews dying that removes that spirituality but then the world becomes dark you see and there's no more everything is diminished what that does is it diminishes the culpability of the Jewish people so therefore the Kitfugim grow less yeah because if the Jews hardly have any Torah left you see then automatically they're not held as guilty as they would be you see if uh, uh, if they had their Torah and so on so therefore by removing culpability or guilt by removing scholarship by removing and Torah and so on automatically the claim against them is diminished and therefore they become worthy of the redemption itself so we now see what happens you see and therefore what is important is that World War One and World War Two, which the Chofetz Chaim says was going to more great. you see we are really in a certain sense waiting for the third confrontation which will be the end but like I said that third confrontation will not be anywhere near as severe as the Holocaust because the Holocaust had absorbed the true amount of destruction uh, of, of, and the punishment of the Jewish people you see now it's an important idea and that's why we see that the Holocaust is a bizarre historical event there's no question that the Holocaust is the greatest evil ever perpetrated against man not only in terms of number imagine six million Jews can't even imagine what that is and so on or killed for nothing for no crime other than the fact that they were Jewish and that itself gives them tremendous merit because when a Jew dies on Kiddush Hashem because he's Jewish because he committed a crime right that means he is dying because he represents God that elevates his neshama tremendously 
So you have that also. But the world has never seen such a wanton brutality of one human being to another, you see. And I want to tell you something. It's not just Germany. It's the German people as well. And it's not just the German people. It's Eastern Europe, right? You have the Baltic states, Ukraine, Lithuania, Poland. All of them were complicit. Every one of them. And it's not just Eastern Europe. It's France, right? The Vichy government. It's England that denied entry of the Jews into Eretz Israel. Could you imagine? You can't even go to Eretz Israel because Britain doesn't want to anger the Arabs. And it's not only England, France, Europe, that were incredibly hostile to the Jews. It's also the United States. Roosevelt, the American government, refused to allow Jews, basically, to come in. When even according to their quota, they could have admitted millions of Jews, but they didn't, you see. So what we're looking here, right, is a entire group of evil, or evil, you see. And that, therefore, is a world war against the Jewish people. That's what Goig is. It's not just a war of one nation. It's one nation that has organized and assembled all the nations of the world. And that's why the gematria, the numerical value of Goig, Umogoig, is 70. And we know that there are basically 70 nations, roots, nations, in the world. So World War II really is the entire world all against the Jewish people, you see. <clears throat> and there's no question that an enormous amount of the debt that would satisfy the judgment to bring the Mashiach has been settled. But obviously, we're not finished, you see. But we do see is that there's a tremendous rise in atheism and power, tyranny, you know, man's inhumanity to man, that is incredibly rising, you know, and this is with all the science and technology, you think that mankind would learn that you should not do this to other people, and you see, instead, they get worse every day, you know. <clears throat> so, what, what the, one of the main ideas of this shir is that we are in World, we are in the uh, Goig and Mogoig situation <coughs> already. We're just waiting, like I said, for the third part. We don't know exactly when and how, but they will. But I do believe another idea, and that is that right now, there used to be one nation, other nations, and so on. But right now, I believe that the United Nations is Goig. Because all the nations of the world sit in that place, basically always condemning the Jewish people. And they are against Jerusalem, which they openly come out and say. And there's a tremendous amount of hatred for the Jewish people. Therefore, we, in many ways, we are very close to the end, you see. Because we are witnessing 
an unbelievable rise in terrible evil in the entire world, you see. And the tragedy is that it's not just China and Russia or Iran and North Korea, but it's the anti-Semitism all over the world that's rising. And what is so shocking is that we would have thought that America, right, is the last fortress or stronghold of decency and dignity, right, and values. We would have thought that that would always be. But America's changing in front of our eyes, you see. So we begin to realize there is nothing left. The only one you can rely on is the Rabbanish Lailam. That's it. He's the only one that you can rely on. And ultimately speaking, he will come back. We don't know how, but he will come back, gather everybody, and take them away. And it says in the Navi that God will seek his vengeance. Not because God is vengeful, no. Because just like the Jews have to, you know, have to accommodate justice, you know, to deserve what they get, guess what? The Goyim, the nations of the world, have to do the same thing. They have to satisfy justice. But their justice, in many ways, is annihilation. They don't realize this. But when God looks at the world and he says, okay, it's over. I now want to change everything. And I'm going to now sit on the seat of judgment. This is what's going to happen to the entire world. A tremendous amount of destruction and annihilation as a punishment for what they've done for the thousand years of, uh, of to, to the Jewish nation. So therefore, <clears throat> let's do what they did, Kriya Shamsav, right? You have to trust in God. Very important. That's not over. That the Jews will be redeemed, as it says. That it will happen. The only thing is that there are many different things that have to be completed before it happens. This is what we begin to understand. You see, there are many requirements that have to be satisfied before it's over. But we are rapidly coming into that type of, uh, of uh, atmosphere where things are obviously speeding up and uh, this is therefore what we are seeing. And I had mentioned previously <coughs> that's what's happening and therefore we really in many ways, like I say, very close and it's going to happen. But what's also important, just like Kriya Samsev, you be very careful of Bashanara. Slander. Why? Because what slander does, it not only destroys the Achtus of Christ, it not only creates Sinas Chinam, hatred, but it also destroys Achtus. It destroys the unity that the Jewish people have for each other. And with that also is called Shalom, peace. With the Jews, if there's sinas chinam, if there's a lot of hatred, basis hatred, there's also no shalom. There's no peace among the Jewish people. So that is also disturbed. 
So therefore, uh, let's try to imitate what they did at the Kriya Shamsav. Habit Tochen, learn the laws of Lashon Hara, be very careful, and try to really, in many ways, have a great feel for the Jewish people, you see. And in the end of time, of course, um, we will realize why everything happened, that all of it happened for the good of the entire world. Any questions? I thought that the war of Gog and Magog, that he's hidden in a cave, and then he's going to come that? out of the cave. What? I learned long ago that the war of Gog and Magog, he's hidden in a cave somewhere. Could it no. be the caves of Afghanistan? No. He was locked in a mountain somewhere? No. I am not familiar I, with I what you're saying. I read it in, the, in I think, in Mayamla Wes. Okay. You'll have to show me and take, you know. And I will tell you. But this, right now, with all the bad that's going on, I don't know, it, it's just going to get worse. So what are we supposed to do? Just learn Mishnayotic? No, I, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you have to be talking. Uh, be I careful do. with Lashon Hara. And just right. stick to Ruchnius. Look, you have to remember, we're only three weeks away, or maybe less, to Rosh Hashanah, right? Correct. Look, we're very close to the Day of Judgment. And who knows what the Day of Judgment this time will produce. And like I told you, next year is Shemitah. That's a very, probably, a very important time as a, as a preparation for the Mashiach. <clears throat> And there's so much bad going on all over. You saw the fires in Israel, the earthquake in Haiti, yeah. Yeah. Taliban crap. What do you yeah. What do you think all of the the fires in Israel? It was. Do you see the footage, Rabbi? No, I, I, I have not. So they said. So if you if you're by the Kotel, looking at the wall, it looks like a beautiful day. Blue skies, no clouds. Yeah sunny, everything. And then yeah. you turn around and everywhere around you else is thick, thick clouds of, of, of ash from the yeah. fire. Well, what, what the Jews have to realize, and they don't because this government is terrible, you have to realize the Arabs hate the Jews by and large. And that's what's happening you can't live together with Arabs. People have to understand there are certain peoples that cannot live together. They must be separated. The Arabs demonstrated in the last, you know, war with uh, uh, Hamas and all that. They all rebelled. The Israeli Arabs were citizens and they rebelled against the Jews. You see? How in the world can you live with people that hate you, that want to destroy you, you see, they don't get it. They don't get it. The problem is Israel is so busy trying to convince the world that they are proper, and they are human and civilized and democratic, that they bend over backwards to do things which are absolutely insane. You see, 
because the, the Jew has a, the Israel has an incredible inferiority complex. They're always embarrassed and ashamed before the goyim. But they don't understand they're committing suicide. This kind of stuff can go on all the time. You cannot live with a nation, or peoples, I should say, that hate you. You see? That's exactly what's going on. There's a tremendous amount of Arab crime, you see. And now with these fires, they could do this all day long. What's to stop them? It doesn't take much to kill people. They don't understand that, you see. Because you're looking at a people that it's an Erev Rav. You know, they're so busy trying to placate, you know, and get the Goyim to love them. This is what's happening. You know, Jews have to live alone. And it's not only in order to observe their religion, which clearly you see in the Torah, where God says you must destroy the Goyim, the seven nations in Israel, because they will destroy you. They will get you to serve and worship idols. It's not the only reason why. Because they hate you. You know, our, uh, Islamic theology hates the Jewish people. Because the Jews have rejected Islam. And there's no way to change that. You know? You just, and, and therefore the Jews will not recognize that. And hopefully it's not too late. This will never go away. They don't get it. You know what I mean? So, um, okay, let's say now, um, with uh, when you were speaking about his kiyah, how he didn't um, sing a shira to Hashem after yeah. Hashem made that miracle. Yes. So, wouldn't it be... <clears throat> even a higher level that during the pain, like now, during the struggle that all of Amisel is dealing with right now in the darkness, if we sing a shida Tashem and we had Hoda'a Tashem, now through the darkness, wouldn't that speed it up to bring the light? It could. One of the things that is very important is to thank Hashem, as you said, for everything that He's done for us. You know, many people don't. They're so busy enjoying the gifts that they've been given, they forget that God has given them those gifts. You see, no question about that. So, so does it have a potential to, to speed it up if we did that during the pain? Like if we're thinking Hashem for the actual pain, wouldn't that speed it up that He would want to bring us the light? Everything will, any mitzvah Jew does ultimately can speed up the redemption. But the problem is there's a certain amount of things, like I say, that has to be required. I mentioned several of them to diminish the culpability, satisfy justice, offer an atonement by the suffering, demonstrate that God's extraordinary power all of these things have to take place, just like Egypt. But they will happen, you see. The critical thing is to hold on. No matter what happens, the Geula will happen. God says that, which is very important. And the Torah does not lie. And it says, like I said many times in Nitzavim, 
even if you're outcast, be at the ends of heaven, which means all over the globe, which is exactly where all the Jews are. From there, Bisham, which means in the outcast, in the ends of heaven itself, I will gather you. It's an incredible promise. I mean, God is not saying, well, you've got to come to me. No. I'm going to come to that place and I'm going to schlep you out. You see? And then I will bring you to me. So the first thing is a physical separation that God will do is separate the Jews from the Goyim. And that will be done through the Torah. Limera Torah. And then God says, once you're separate from the Goyim, I will bring you to me, Yikochecho, I will take you, which is to bring all of you to Eretz Israel with the Mashiach and the Beis Hamikdash. Now, we don't really know how that's going to happen. Like I once mentioned, <clears throat> it's much easier to understand the redemption in Egypt than it is to understand this ultimate redemption. Because Egypt is only one country. So all you have to do is, you know, neutralize the government, and then you can take the Jews out. But how is God going to go into every nation and take the Jews out? We don't know. Because it's no longer one nation. It's 193. It's over 200 countries in the world. How is he going to do that? We don't know. And how is he going to convince Jews to leave? We don't know. And Jews, many of them are gone. They're either intermarried, they're assimilated. How many Jews don't even know they're Jews? Yet God is not going to leave one behind. We don't know how, you see. But I guarantee you it's going to be the greatest miracle ever known. It's going to make Egypt look like a kindergarten. The nest of the Geula, which is the greatest event in the all of creation, like I say, uh, will make uh, the redemption of Egypt like some type of a kindergarten party. Because it's just, it'll be extraordinary beyond our imagination how God is going to pull that off. And it's permanent. No going back to what was, you see. And every Jew will have more honor than the greatest kings have now, you see. We can't even believe what that means. Imagine the Jews were treated like ants in the Holocaust, the way they were killed, right? <clears throat> in the time of the Mashiach, every Jew will be treated as a royal figure greater than any king alive today. We, we cannot even begin to understand what that means. And it's going to happen now, not in Oilam Habo. And not in Ghanaian. You see? It's going to be the Messianic era. And the Messianic era is going to last several hundred years. We're not talking about an era that's going to last three years and that's it. No. It will last a long time. You see? Because people will get old. Uh, there will be unbelievable joy to compensate for the thousands of years of misery, suffering, and torture that the Jews have gone through. This is the promise that God made.
That's how we know it's going to happen. God never reneges. Never. You see. So, Rabbi, that Messianic era, that's going to be from the year 6,000 to 7,000? Say that again? The Messianic era that you're speaking of now, with the bliss and all that, that's between the years 6,000 to 7,000? No. 6,000 is the end of this world. The Messianic era is a time before that. You see? So right now, we, what do we have? 219 years to go to yeah. the year 6,000. So the Messianic era is going to start and it will end itself in the year 6,000. After the year 6,000, <clears throat> we're not even on this planet. The whole universe changes, you see. And everybody will be lifted off the earth into a different place, probably Gan Eden. We don't even know what that means. So I'm talking about the Messianic era, which we have no idea of what it will be like. It's beyond comprehension. It's so, like a child, which I once explained. It's like a child before it's born. Does it have any idea of what the other side looks like when it gets out? No, of course not. Can I conceive of a world outside of the uterus? That's the difference. We cannot conceive of a world outside of, the, uh, of this world. In a messianic era, which is part of the 6,000 years, it will just be, you know, like I say, extraordinary. So, Rabbi, didn't you say that um, it's Tichiyat uh, HaMetim is going to be for 210 years? It will, it will take 210 years. But the Messianic era will start before that. <clears throat> the Messianic era starts right before Tichiyat HaMetim. And it so, will continue. So there are people that will get up at the end of the Messianic era. There are people that will actually have missed most of the era. They'll never because they will... They, what was that? They will have never experienced it. Well, I'm sure everybody's going to get it before, but, you know, I mean, maybe they'll get up like five months before it's over. Oh, wow. Because their, their neshama cannot arise. There's too much zoyama. There's too much sinning. So to, to all the incarnations, Kilgulam. So till til everything is, you know, erased, you know. But look, everybody will experience the Messianic era. The question is, how much of the Messianic era? You know? But everybody Rabbi, will. Yeah. You know how Yaakov Avino said, reduce Shama, and it was a hint that the Galut would end in Mitzrayim 210 years earlier? Do you think it's yes. the same clue for us now? <clears throat> Well, we are not far away. 210 the is the year 2030. Right? right. 2030. Nine is, years uh, away. Bottom line. Yeah, nine years, yeah. Yeah, I, I believe that Messianic here will stop before the nine years. I believe that by the time uh, 2030 happens, which is what? Which We're is basically nine years. I believe that Mashiach ben Yosef will be here, and even maybe Mashiach ben David. 
I do not believe that God is going to wait around while the LGBTQ plus take over the planet, which is really what's happening. And the incredible injustice and murder and butchery is going to happen. You know, the world is really on its way down. The world is in a death spiral. That's what's happening. And therefore, God will act. You know, he's just trying to clean it up. The last vestige of filth. I believe that's what's happening. So I believe with nine years, it's all over. Probably much earlier than that. That's why things are so intense. That is why America's falling. Quickly. Quickly, correct. Yes. I mean, I just, it's hard to believe that in seven months or six months, Biden has destroyed so much of this earth, so much of this world, America. And it's incredible to watch people, how deluded they are. You know, it's hard to believe that people do not see what's going on. I believe that, you know. But it is. That is why we are watching the speed, the speed of deterioration is beyond belief. That's the proof that God wants to end it quickly. That's exactly what happened in Egypt. He wanted it to end quickly. So what he did is he made Pari give the decree of straw, to gather the straw. Because he wanted to end it quickly. He doesn't want to dilly-dally. You know. Because you have evil coming at this world from all directions. You know. I mean, Iran, Iran is now much worse with this, with this guy, Racy. Ibrahim Racy, who's a, who's a certified murderer. He is now the uh, president of Iran. It's much worse. And now with the Taliban in Afghanistan, then you have Hezbollah logging rockets into Israel. Now you have fires in Jerusalem. Now how long, how, how long can this continue? So I believe all of this is an in- tremendously intensified effort to end it now. And like I said last time, Shemitah, Hopefully, Mitzoy Shemitah, which is the year after this Shemitah, is Yoivel. And Rava says that the Mashiach comes, right, at Mitzoy Shemitah, which I believe is Yovel. You see? So I believe it's going to happen. Shortly. So, uh, so you believe that he comes before the Yovel, or he comes uh, in the year of the Yovel? Well, probably during the year of your, uh no, during the year. Remember, when it means he will come, it means that he will be known. But he himself will probably be freed, probably in the Shemitah year. 